You're listening to a Comics XF podcast. X-Men. Hey everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of Battle of This is your weekly X-Men podcast where we rank every story from A to Z. Ah, ah, ah. This is Adam. One Adam. We did do it in Adam, 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 Adam. Halloween was, I don't know. When did we do the hell episode? Like three episodes ago? A time, time no, doesn't make sense. I'm just counting. Like, you know, the count on Sesame Street. Ah, 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 one Zach. And I'm Zach, the bad boy. <laughs> yeah, because we're doing a Count Nefarious. Dracula. This week. No, oh, Count Nefarious. No, I, so I, I thought you were talking about the famous Count, the Dracula one, the one that they no. are, there's like a lot of comics about, the Marvel comic, mm-hmm. scare, Dracula. Yeah, the tomb, By the way, the tomb of Dracula. By the way, folks. If you have not read the Roy Thomas's and Mike Mignola's Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula comic, you should go read it. It's essentially Hellboy Zero. It's pretty great. I mean, the movie's great, too, but uh, it's so cool to see the the adaptation. The movie is a great thing to watch one time, and I am not sure watching it a second time would add joy to my life. I think when you start to peel apart kind of the in-camera stuff that Coppola is doing in that movie. There's a lot of really fun effects that he gets oh, to play around with in that movie. It's that a, a lot it's of a fun. visual. It's a visual treat. There's mm-hmm. a lot of fun in it. And there's a lot of people having a blast. And also the script is not good. Well, I mean, come on, you know, plus, the, the plus script, Keanu Reeves script, doesn't seem to have a pulse. Oh, I don't, I don't care about that, but the script <laughs> of, Guys, this is our hot take on Francis Ford Coppola's Bob Stark's Dracula. My issue is that the script wants to hone very tightly to Bram Stoker's Dracula, except for where it wants to diverge wildly from it. And the problem is the better part of the movie is when it diverges wildly. And the worst part of the movie is when it wants to do Bram Stoker's actual Dracula. And I'm like, (laughs) Bram Stoker's Dracula was about the best first pass we could do on Dracula. Dracula has been improved on since its conception. Sure. Uh, but we don't have Count Dracula in this episode. We do um, not. No vampires. This is a zero vampire percent. Well, okay. This episode. Count Nefaria. Some have described him as an energy vampire, but <laughs> sure. <laughs> oh, Zach, you know, I, I, would, not, I was joking if, about that. I, I hear what I just did there. That was unintentional. Not a Colin Robinson style energy vampire. At least that's not that's not what Stan and Jack had in mind for this character. In practice, that's mm. a different thing. That's a different thing. I mean, like he absorbs psionic energy from people and uses that to power himself, I think. I guess. I mean, if you paid me, I could not tell you what Count Nefaria's actual powers are, except that he does have a knack for getting groups of villains together to attack either Avengers or X-Men or whoever he's fighting against other, 
Spider-Man gangs. Um, so we've got a couple of uh, Count Nefarious stories for you this week, but we are also sort of going off into uh, the other category of uh, dead X-Men. So, so what is... here's, here's what happened. We started with the German of an idea from one of our great patrons. Patrons? Yes. Who, if you want to join their noble ranks, uh, you can go over to patreon.com slash battle of the atom, and you can reach deep down into your hearts and your pocketbooks and toss a couple of coins into our coffers, and then you get a story that we will inevitably punish ourselves with. <laughs> you can give us a nice story. In fact, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be honest. Patreon supporter Robert did a great job. Back went in there and said, "Here's something you'll like have fun talking about and in not hate yourself for reading." Yes. And then what do we do, Adam? I'm well, sorry. I don't want to the... say we. I don't want to say <laughs> we on this because I'm not that you are not an active participant in everything we do. Inculpable. One of us, I think, in practice is more susceptible to punishing himself as a joke <laughs> and forgetting that he has to do that to himself. Uh, I would argue that, uh, you know, there's one pretty terrible one this week, but the other ones have a lot of merit. So I'm really interested to, uh, I to get into this. I don't know which one you're talking about. Is the I love that one. energy. It, that's, <laughs> that's enjoyable for me. Cause I'm All like, right. I'm like, okay, which which one did he think wasn't terrible now? Now I'm okay. sitting here like, hold on. I kind of yeah. want to know how Adam feels. By the way, Robert <laughs> selected the Doomsmith scenario, what should have been Giant Size X-Men 2, and then was just two issues of X-Men at 94 mm -hmm. and 95. And we'll get to that. But we're going we're gonna to start off this. We're going to start off this with uh, the first time Marvel's Merry Mutants uh, battled the Count. That is the Count Nefaria. And that is, of course... X-Men 22 and 23. This is called Divided We Fall. Yeah, written by Roy the Boy Thomas and art Roy, by oh, Jay, <laughs> Jay Gavin and Dick Ayers. Um, Stan Lee has a little note here claiming he's just on vacation. What's that about? Stan, I, we know you're not writing this book anymore. By the way, knock it off. So there's a couple of things on that. One. This book came out in 1966, and that was when Stan Lee's, like, I think that's about when the, his, like, college touring thing started. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was also, you know, he's he's ramping around. So he was dropping the books that he didn't care about, and we've all read Stan Lee's X-Men. We know. Uh, <laughs> also, Jay Gavin, this is an interesting tidbit. Jay Gavin is a pseudonym for Werner Roth. Oh, great. Uh, at the time... My, I'd have to go back and reread Marvel Comics: The Untold Story. If you've not read Sean Howe's seminal book on the early history of Marvel Comics, you got to. If you want to know what was going on, pretty much up to the bankruptcy days, that's the that's the best place for it. Anyway, my recollection of this is that they didn't want DC knowing that they were also doing Marvel books. I think they might have had a contract, but listen. All sides need to honor the contract in comics. And I'm not saying I'm not saying that they that DC wasn't honoring their contract. I've just heard the backstory of literally two comics in my life. I just yeah. I just kind of know maybe maybe I'm not going to blame the freelancers on this one. <laughs> Do you know where he got the name Jake Gavin? This is a fun fight. I 
I do not, Adam. Where did he get the name are, Jay Gavin? They are Werner Roth's uh, two sons' first names. So it's Jay and Gavin, and he used that for his pseudonym um, huh. so that he could avoid DC getting mad that he was drawing Marvel comics at the same time. Hey, um, I'm going to be honest, Werner Roth, <laughs> it's not that good of a good of a, a secret <laughs> name. You did a bad one. <laughs> Oh, come on. He did fine. Uh, so our X-Men are going to um, actually have a host of villains to fight in these two issues. But first, they must defeat the evil robot Colosso. Yeah. Hey, Colosso's a danger room robot that the professor has built. Uh, and I've got to say, not as good as any of the other robots that they've had to fight. Not as good as the Sentinels. Do you know how many times Colosso appears in uh, X-Men after this? I hope zero because he sucks. Um, my understanding is one. Actually, he's in the Doomsmith scenario. I saw that they train against Colosso. It was wild. Uh, Wait, really? But I missed that. Yeah, completely. they trained against Colosso. Oh, my God. That's great. Uh, I gotta, the I Marvel Wiki is saying that. Colosso is in that issue uh, of X-Men 110 where they have to fight Warhawk. When the Hellfire oh. Club messes with the danger room behind the scenes. Hmm. Uh, but apparently also in Fantastic Four World's Greatest Comics Magazine number three, uh, a story by Eric Larson and Eric Stevenson and Tom DeFalco, uh, Colosso does appear. Amazing. I hope he looks better than he does here because he's just kind of a dopey little robot. Uh, well, Werner, Roth is, Werner Roth is doing the job. That's what yeah. that's what he is doing right now. He just kind of looks like a walking furnace. Anyway, they defeat Colosso, uh, Professor because X. Because they work as a team. Yes. Teamwork makes the dream work. And because of this, Professor X lets the X-Men go off on vacation while he is left to lament his sad state as being bound in a wheelchair. It's very sad. It was the 60s. Uh, what is sad and also very funny, very funny is immediately they get told, hey, you guys have time off. Bobby and Hank, let's go. Let's go pick up chicks. We got Vera and Zelda waiting for us. Let's go down to the malt shop and have a time. That's great. Love that for them. Yes. Which leaves Warren and Jean. Who are dating. Ish. Kind of like. Ish. I, I don't know. All of my knowledge of 60s courting comes from TV shows that I don't know are true or not. <laughs> uh, but I think Warren is more dating Gene than Gene is dating Warren. Well, especially because <laughs> who tags along on this dinner? She date. immediately invites Cyclops to come to their fancy dinner date. Cyclops is like, oh, I'll pay for my own dinner. I'm fine. And <laughs> Warren's like, I'm rich. I'm your rich friend. I can buy dinner, Scott. I'm buying. It's more annoying if we split the check. I'm just. I'll, I'll pay for your $10 club sandwich that you got because you tried to find the cheapest thing on the menu because you didn't want to be a bother. It is that funny part, that that last part, what Scott ordered is not textual, <laughs> but I think spiritually it's right. I know some people say he would have gotten the cup of soup. And if I would have thought of that joke, I would have made it. <laughs> but I had a club sandwich today. And so that's what I thought of. You're probably not that far off the mark. It is pretty great that Gene and Scott are mentally in their thought bubbles, like lusting after each other and, and how they're they're They know they're in love with each other. Um, there's a, there's a beautiful and, page. 
Oh, you, you go ahead. Go ahead. I, I'm I just think gonna say thinking. Warren and Gene get up to leave, and Scott's like, "Well, uh, yeah, I've I've got friends. I've got plans. Uh, I, I've got bye. friends. I definitely have friends. <laughs> friends, friends, no friendly friends. friends. Time to meet my friends. Uh, no, oh, the boy. best part for me is after Scott leaves, Warren is taking Gene back to driving in his car, and he's like, "Man, I think Gene's really warming up to me. I think I finally have a chance with her." And Gene's thought bubble, same panel. Oh, Scott. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. So good. I have a lot. Of, I got a lot of issues with Roy the boy uh, in terms of enjoying his writing. This is not part of it. This did great. Good job. A plus Roy. Give me more of these teens being 60s teens. Give me less of Count Nefaria. Okay. This is where the, the story goes completely off the rails because in no short order, the X-Men are lured to Central Park by what appears to be doppelganger versions of themselves. When they arrive, they are assaulted by a host of B villains, including a D-list, really, uh, including the I Unicorn. Mean, and explicitly D-list in this. Like, they're making fun of how obscure these villains are. Making fun. They're trying to... Roy's trying to get them over, and it's not Yes. Uh, so we have the Unicorn. We have Scarecrow. We have the Eel. Plant Man, Porcupine, and even a couple of goons from the Magia. So so out of those villains, Adam, are there any that you would be like, okay, this is a real Marvel villain and other of these are fake? Because uh, no. I feel, I feel like, I, I always think of Porcupine as like, Porcupine's like, in my mind, one of the Marvel jobbers. Like you put Porcupine anywhere, it's great. He has a dumb costume, but it's a good dumb costume. It's like armadillo style, dumb, good costume. They did uh, make so, fun of Zeb Wells did make fun of porcupine by bringing him into an episode of she Hulk uh, on the MCU show, which was kind of funny. Um, but now you told me before we started that wait, this porcupine hold on, hold on, is, hold on. Yes. I didn't watch that show. Uh, yes. Like, did he wear, did he wear the pokey costume and everything? He did. It was a big joke because he hadn't taken it off in a while and it smelled. Okay. So. <laughs> It's pretty funny. I'm going to, I don't want to play favorites here. I'm just going to say that in the world of loving, you know, C-list Marvel jobbers, the She-Hulk show did that. And I know Zeb Wells loves his stuff. And all I'm going to say is the Modoc show did an entire thing where some guys from the bar with no name, including Armadillo, uh, just go out and like have a great time together because they know they all suck. But the joke is episode. not about how much these characters suck. The joke is like, this is their life. How do they live with it? Which is my favorite. It's my favorite Marvel superhero thing. And it's actually why Modoc showrunner uh, and Modoc voice uh, guy, Jordan Bloom and Patton Oswald, friend of the show, mm -hmm. Jordan Bloom, why their their recent uh, Dark Horse book was so good. Anyway, if you're only going to watch one episode of that show, I would recommend the one where the Daredevil a, a, one Abomination has a self-help group that involves D-list villains, including the party. What? Okay, hold on. Abomination self-help. I just want to know who's in Abomination self-help group now, because you know I love that. Okay, who's... Man, this porcupine look sucks. I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> I kind of so hate to. it. So you get Manbull. Okay, fine. But Ella, okay, I don't know him. 
Man, hey, I don't want to be rude because I know we've already done this, but She-Hulk doesn't look good in this show, right? Listen, they were spending $25 million an episode on that show. And no, I don't think that the graphics look great. Uh, However... That's supposed to be the wrecker? I'm sorry, Zeb. Zeb, that's not the wrecker. The wrecker has a magical freaking crowbar. That's not the wrecker. Hold on a sec, but the... Listen, there's a reason he's not in his outfit. Okay, but why wouldn't why wouldn't Zach, you put him Zach, in his You have not clothes? watched this show. Let's not argue. I'm not about looking She-Hulk. at pictures of the entire wrecking crew and it's making me mad, Adam. They were never in full costume in the show. That's a problem. Yes. Why do they, they're Zach? Why do they oh why God. do they not let why do they not let these guys wear their clothes? Because why they can't hadn't Thor wear his the silly hat? crew yet. They hadn't become the wrecking crew yet. Relax. It's okay. No one cares about the Wrecking Crew's origin. We just want the Wrecking Crew with their magical construction weapons fighting Thor. That's all we want. That's what the people crave. You know you know how the MCU is drowning right now and can't support itself? That's what the people need. They don't need cameos from movies that we all agreed in 2006 were bad and we hated. No, we don't need that. We need the Wrecking Crew to show up and be the Wrecking Crew, dang it. Yes, that's all we I'm need. I'm sure the youth of America will get very excited about their magical construction. The youth of the of America, Adam. The youth of America crave the Wrecking Crew. <laughs> they desire I it. it. I hear it all the time. Back, it's all over TikTok. <laughs> Adam, back in the day, we used to have children on Wrecking Crews, and you know what? They were happy. <laughs> now, what's the most popular game in the world? It's about wrecking things. It's about building things and wrecking things. It's called Minecraft. I don't know if the kids still play it. My son does. I think it the, is. Still the fun. children still play the Minecraft. That is the children fun. crave being on a wrecking crew. They desire it innately. We need to give them the actual wrecking crew in their real clothes. Cannot emphasize enough. The wrecking crew does not appear in any of the comics we're talking about. I just got strong feelings about Thunderball and his boys. That was a wild tangent that I did not expect you to go on. Anyway, this portion. Did you think I not- wouldn't like the wrecking crew? Hold on. Did you think I was like, I'm a guy who got very excited about a Ghost Rider comic yesterday. See, this where is Ghost my Rider- fault. This is my fault because I brought up the She-Hulk show. I should not have done that because it sent me You shouldn't have. But please finish I, your thought about Ben Percy's Ghost Rider because I know you're very excited about, what is it, Ghost Rider Baby? If y'all haven't read Ben Percy's recent Ghost Rider, <laughs> uh, there's, there's, a, there's a demon cult man. Uh, he's in the cult of Mephisto or whatever. Uh, and they are convincing children to do Satanism. In a satanic panic. <laughs> and he has a force field around his base that only only the youth can get through. And not very explicitly the olds. So Ghost Rider and his Talia Warroad, his uh, former FBI agent girlfriend who is a goth and great and a magical witch. They get there and they're like, well, we're olds. We can't get through. So how do they solve this problem? This is great. They immediately have sex under the full moon and create a moon child. And then Amazing. the moon child can go to it. It's a baby, baby skeleton ghost rider that they had. I, I love speechless. this book so much. Ben Percy, speechless. friend of the show, Ben Percy, come on and we will exclusively talk about your ghost rider. Adam will not enjoy the episode. Well, 
that that's not going to happen on this show because this show is about X-Men. But when Zach starts his Ghost Rider pod, which we missed it, we could have done it. I I could have gotten away with this with that X-Men, that Wolverine Ghost Rider crossover. (laughs) I could have done it. Adam, you'll notice that we're not. You'll notice we're not really talking about this Silver Age story because essentially what happens is that the D-listers bring the X-Men back, imprison them. The Count of Fari is really interested in having the X-Men kind of join with them uh, on on their villain team. Um, He wants to hold Washington, D.C. ransom for $100 million, um, which is pretty funny. It isn't not a lot of that. That's still like a lot of money. Like sure. here's the thing. Here's the thing. I know it's not like a lot of lot of money in government scale, but in Austin Powers International Man of Mystery, if Doctor Evil would have said one hundred million dollars, it wouldn't have been as good of a joke as when he said one million dollars. <laughs> I'm doing the pinky thing. Adam's not even looking at this. Before. I didn't even do the pinky thing because this is the he didn't this is a do podcast. The you don't see I did the, the pinky thing. That's the difference between you and me, man. I did the pinky thing. Committed. Committed. Um, Nefaria has this absolutely bonkers plan. He builds a dome around the entirety of Washington, D.C. which he doesn't under the dome to them. A yeah, Brian K. Vaughn's under the dome. Seems to appear to like exist in a giant field. I feel like they don't quite understand the uh, the structures around Washington, D.C. Anyway, um, I would, I would so agree. I would agree. Then the X-Men have to go and collect the ransom from the U.S. government in a small briefcase. And then Professor X plays switcheroo because he can walk now. He's figured out how to use a device to actually get around on his on his legs. It's braces. He figured out braces, which I'm really happy for him. I mean, mobility yeah. is so important. If if that's something that he wants for his bodily autonomy, I want that for Professor X. Yeah. So, um, you know, Nefaria thinks he's got the ransom money. It disappears at the end of the episode. And this ain't good. This is a mess. It's, it's an absolute mess. The X-Men are like, uh, I guess we have to trick Count Nefaria. And here's the thing, Adam, Count Nefaria, I know it was 1966, so couldn't have been that established. But Count Nefaria was super not established. He had appeared in one Avenger story, Avengers 13, and then two issues of Tales of Suspense uh, where he fought Iron Man. Mm-hmm. And he's supposed to be this, like, you know, criminal mastermind that we all fear. And really, you should have just, like, you know, zapped him or, you know. Listen, we've already read stories where Gene defeats villains by wrapping the cape of the hero, the villain, over their head. And Nefaria has a pretty long cape. Like, easy cape. win here, guys. You don't need to be fighting all these D-list villains and, and running to DC. It's just Nefaria. Nefaria feels like he feels like a another attempt to do Dr. Doom in the same way Magneto in the Silver Age feels like another attempt to do Dr. Doom. And the problem is, I'm not going to say Dr. Doom was the first of his kind because obviously he wasn't. But they got Dr. Doom right off the bat. The first Dr. Doom story is a classic. Well, Dr. Doom has the core connection to the heroes that makes him integral to their story. There is he did no, it then. 
He, he no, absolutely did not when he started. He was a guy named Dr. Doom. I know, but he still looks really cool. Count Nefaria does not even look cool. He's just a dude with a monocle and a cape. Not, not one of Jack's not one of Jack's best designs at all. Zach, which is... Did you know we've been talking for almost a half an hour about this story, which is not great. I would say that most X-Men readers can probably skip this one and not feel that bothered. It's you know it is it is the most Roy Thomas Werner Roth story. Also, Roy Thomas makes sure you know that he's referencing old stories the entire time, which at least Roy Thomas is always Roy time. Roy Thomas. That's important to me. I would say that if listeners are interested in a version of this that involves D-list villains in Washington, D.C., they should read Walt Simonson's uh, Acts of Vengeance Fantastic Four arc, where D-list villains continue to try and attack the Fantastic Four while they're testifying before Congress. Much better version of this story. Speaking of, do you know why? Or I guess our, you probably know because you've read it. You know why it's D-list villains attacking the Fantastic Four in Acts of Vengeance, right? Please tell our listeners. Because Dr. Doom was like, fine, we'll do this trade, but I'm not giving anyone with any actual ability to maybe defeat the Fantastic Four instead of me a chance to defeat the Fantastic Four instead of me. I'm going to send the worst dudes. That's and right. I, that's, hey, that's why we care about Dr. Doom, who has an equally stupid name as Count Nefaria. That's why we care about Dr. Doom, and no one cares about Count Nefaria. You try and tell me Count Nefarious in a story, I tune out immediately. I do not care. It's how Bendis lost me on his Moon Knight. It was like, now this is a Count Nefarious story. I'm like, Brian, I was with you. I was with you for a little bit. Nobody knows what to do with this character. If you go to his Wikipedia, uh, his Marvel fandom wiki uh, page, his power set is absolutely incomprehensible. And his costumes have only gotten worse over time. Um, And it's a shame because Count Nefarious that's a sick name, you know? That's a really great name, but you messed it, up. It does sound like the name that a child would make up for their supervillain, which, which also Doctor Doom does wonderful. too, which I get, but Yeah. So let's let's rank this uh this not great story on our big old list, Zach. What do you think? Well, that's the thing. That's the thing, and people underestimate that about this podcast is that regardless of what else you might say, we do have a list. Uh, a list of 840 X-Men stories, which some would consider too many. Uh, 840 X-Men stories ranked from best to worst. House of X, Powers of Ten being uh, the number one story. The number 100 story being the Mighty Thor, Asgard, Shi'ar War. The number 300 story being the gentleman's name is Magneto. Uh, that's a 300. Number 500 is Uncanny X-Men 303 going through the motions. Number 700 is Wolverine Goes to Hell, the story where Wolverine goes to hell in as part of the event Wolverine Goes to Hell. And the worst X-Men story of all time is at 840. You know it, I know it, we all know it. It's 2099 Word of Tomorrow. So at 800, we have the first uh, Avengers versus X-Men story, which is X-Men 43 to 45 and Avengers 53. I think this is worse than that. I think we're in the 800s. We kind of are, and that's even including that that story has Roy Thomas taking an entire issue to explain the continuity of Red Raven. <laughs> uh, I'd rather read Prisoner of Love at 8.15. Would you rather read this than The Warlock Wakes or the first Banshee story, both of which are bad? 
I think this is probably uh, right below Prisoner of Love and above Deadpool versus X-Force, which has way too many swastikas for a Pepe Larraz story. Listen, Pepe, just like, I know <laughs> it was early. You're jobbing. I get it, man. You're Pepe, you're just like the Wrecking Crew, and someday you will get the respect you deserve, much like the Wrecking Crew did. Amazing. I got that backwards. Amazing. Wrecking Crew gets no respect. Pepe Larraz, however gets many respects. He gets to draw a vampire crossover for Marvel now. Sure. Instead of instead of instead of the big X-Men book where RB Silva's doing the other one that ends doesn't the make year. a lot of sense, it, does it? It's I just mean, like maybe they asked him and he didn't want to and that's fine, but it's like he he could I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I don't want to I don't want to I don't want to I don't want to spew conspiracy theories. All we know is the truth and that he's writing a vampire book and okay. it's gonna look great. It's gonna look great. It's gonna be. It's gonna be almost as beautiful as that panel where, uh, where he has Kickass say uh, that Joe Biden needs <laughs> Joe some help. <laughs> Very explicitly, oh. Mark Miller writes, "Joe Biden needs my help." So I, Dave, uh, I forget Dave's I don't know. last sure, name from Kickass. Dave from Kickass, who's in his thirties, is like, "Let's go! I'm Kickass again." Great. Anyway. If nothing else, Mark Miller did give us the line, Joe Biden needs my help. It's pretty funny. All right. So That's second story is probably good. one that readers are more familiar with. And this is our request for this week. And that is Uncanny X-Men 94 to 95, the Doomsmith scenario, written by Chris Claremont, plotted by Len Wein, and drawn by none other than Dave Cockrum and inked by Bob McCloud. Well, what? the first issue is by yeah. McCloud. Second issue is by uh, Sam Granger. But yes. Still, killer creative team here. And uh, I think most of us are familiar with this as the, you know, this is the start of the Claremont run right after Giant Size X-Men. It's very exciting. This is the start of the Claremont run. And there's a couple of things about the early X-Men, specifically the specifically the Dave Cockrum stuff, that reading it out of the context of monthlies, you don't understand. The first is that Claremont does legit. We say the start of the Claremont run. Claremont takes a spell to get going. Like sure. Len Wein is, has already plotted this ish or this series out for the most part for the first couple of issues because uh, it was initially going to be uh giant size X-Men number two. Uh, and that isn't what happened. So 94 and 95, are with Len Wein, and I believe 96, which is the Nagari story. Yeah, that's Bill Mantlo mm -hmm. uh, is involved in that one. And Mantlo does, you know, at least one, if not two more stories uh, in this early chunk. The other thing that's interesting is that this book was coming out bi-monthly. Uh, right. So every other month, it was only six issues a year. Uh, part of that was because they were doing that for some of the books that they weren't so sure about, and they didn't want to clog up their publishing I, I don't know if at this time they still had the limits on how many books they could publish a month or if that was gone by 75, uh, but they still had this low. Uh, also, if they wanted to keep Dave Cockrum drawing it. I mean, Dave was never the fastest guy. I don't know how many he was doing at the time because a lot of guys were doing a lot at the time. But you can see Claremont pick up. But part of part of why it seems like Claremont gets his feet under him really quick is because he's actually like spending a lot of time between these issues being able to get them right. Uh -huh. uh, and I think after the first three issues, like that's when the book 
Well, actually, no, the book really kicks off with like 98, 99, 100, the Phoenix stuff. Uh, right. But it's int- it's interesting to see this team develop because this issue starts and they're like, okay, Krakoa just happened. Um, We got a lot of X-Men now. Very funny <laughs> for them to be like, there's 13 characters on this team. It's too That's too many. many. Time for this Sunfire is too many to X-Men. Sunfire immediately quits. Love that. Don't ask. Don't call me. <laughs> Bye. Bye, Shiro. We'll see you. See you later. The rest of the 05 X-Men quit. Besides yep. besides Scott. Scott's like, I have nowhere else to go. Um, this is <laughs> this, this is, is the, my life. This is the only thing I have going for me. You're, Warren, you're rich. Beast, you aren't even here. You're an Avenger. Bobby, you've got college to do. And like, you're going to be a great CPA. I'm sure you won't get like called on several tax fraud things at some point in your life. Gene, I don't know what you're, you got going on. I guess being being the girl, and we already have Storm here, so that takes care of our girl quotient. Uh, but you have to leave, too. Uh, and then Cyclops says, now it's time to train. And they spend yes. weeks training in the danger room together. I, I am now seeing, now that I'm flipping it through it, I am noticing that Colosso is here. Um, Colosso is really here. funny. That Colossus is running after Colosso. I love that. That's really fun. You gotta imagine Dave Cockburn was like, oh, I mean, what was the last? You guys keep talking about something with Count Nefaria before. Can we just, can I like flip through that? And they grabbed one from the archive, showed it to Dave. He was like, great, we're gonna have Colossus. This guy's named Colosso and he's in the danger room. We already have to do that. That'll be a great bit for me personally. Love it. I just, this whole first part is a lot of fun. You know, this whole training montage, you're starting to see the Cyclops uh, Wolverine stuff. You're starting to see just how like embittered Thunderbird is. He did, really doesn't want to be bossed around. So you are seeing a- exactly the same Cyclops Wolverine and Cyclops Thunderbird stuff. And it's very it's very obvious that they like they had been thinking about this between giant size. And now they're like, OK, well, we we want to kill off one of these as like a big thing. And they know those two characters are about the same character at this point right and it's a different world if if thunderbird doesn't bite it and wolverine does Mm -hmm. uh but it's interesting i feel like in this though like knowing that they have to make his death matter they do give thunderbird like the lion's share of attention especially in this first issue oh like it feels we need to make him a real character yes absolutely to the expense of characters like Nightcrawler or Storm, who will become the favorites of this creative team, but don't really do anything in this. Even no. Colossus gets more to do. And by more to do, I mean, sometimes he speaks in acrylic letters instead of uh, instead of English right. letters. And that's great. Now, this this issue 94 does teach us a very important lesson, which is if you work inside of a top secret military f- nuclear powered facility with, uh, you know, nuclear weapons inside of a mountain and someone mails you a mystery package that when you open it has a button that says, press me, don't press the button. (laughs) Honestly, (laughs) don't press it. Incredibly dumb of them to press that button. (laughs) Because who comes out of a portal but the Animan? And um, the Animan are all sort of like humanoid animals with uh, little like radio controlled antenna on the sides of their heads controlled by none other than Count Nefaria. 
The thing about the Animen is that originally most of them are from the un- Unholy Three. Catman and Ape Man and Birdman are all from a Daredevil group called the Unholy Three. Dragonfly is new. Okay. Yeah, they all seem to want to be human, and Count Nefaria has promised that to them. Um, the X-Men are it's... on the hunt, but unfortunately, Count Nefaria makes their uh, SR-71 disappear. Hey, is it weird? Is it weird that Count Nefaria's next plan is to like hire a bunch of furries to do his evil doing? Because that's what happens in this. These are that's... not like animal-themed superheroes. They are like full anthropomorphic dudes that like there's art on blue sky that I didn't ask for. And I'm happy for the people that want it. <laughs> uh, but like, this is, this shouldn't be on my for you page. You guys really need to understand your algorithm a little better. They're fine. Like, that's, They're just that's, like villains of the week who like happen to look like animals and they give the X-Men something to punch until count Nefaria decides to make a dramatic exit in a army plane. Um, and Thunderbird. In both of these stories, by the way, Count Nefaria has done nothing. Count Nefaria right. is just like there behind the scenes. Well, he has shown up, uh, you know, with these henchmen to take over this facility. So he's at least accomplished. He's going to shoot all of the United States nuclear missiles. Yeah. Is what he's going to do. But I don't, I don't, what's his end game? Like all the missiles go. What what is what does he do the next day? I don't understand Count Nefarious plan here. That was actually the entire thing behind mutually assured destruction. Is what do you do after it? He doesn't uh, have a, a a really great idea, and so he does sort of escape once he realizes that the Animen have been defeated. But who tags along on this journey? But Thunderbird hangs along on the wing, and um, you know he's sort of bashing the hell out of this plane. Professor X telling him, get out, get out. The plane is going to explode. And we get this amazing panel of Professor X's giant furry uh, pointy eyebrows as he telepathically sees and experiences Thunderbird's death through his mind. rock fam You know, we get this great explosion on the next page and this really great four, pa- four panel sequence of Professor X sort of like going from agony to despair and in, in the flames love the color work on here you know this is a pivotal moment for this team that is going to shape where it goes well and i think even if it's like this isn't pure claremont yet like this is a very this is him drawing a line in the sand and saying we want this book to be something different and hold on, I'm trying to pull I'm trying to pull it up real quick cuz I really you know, we say, you know, Thunderbird obviously dies and doesn't become part of the most popular team in comics until like a year ago, mm. uh which still they haven't done enough with even though he's got a sick new look. Oh, uh, I love the new look. I love the new look too. It's like I I wasn't sold on it when I first saw it and then I saw it in action uh and I was like actually no, this rules. But mm-hmm. Thunderbird, like they make his death matter. They give him, they give him a good line. Like that last, the last line that he says, all my, or I've been a loner all my life, Xavier, an outcast dumped on by everyone I met, but I'm a man, Xavier, a warrior of the Apache. And today I'm going to prove it. Like it sums up his character in the three pages that are the three books he's been in so far. And yes, it's a 
it's a cultural caricature stereotype of, oh, I have to be the warrior. But in this scene, because it's juxtaposed with this being a frivolous, pointless death to try and take down a D-list supervillain and just dying because he had it baked into his mind that he had to be the warrior and he had to be the one to sacrifice himself. It it kind of transcends everything and really works in a way that you wouldn't expect from the rest of the story leading up to it. And yeah. I think that's that's the that's the indication that this is something different. It's not that a character died. It's that there was a lot of interesting context around how he died. And there is a lot of interesting color that doesn't make it a heroic sacrifice or something pointless. It's this weird in-between stage that Claremont's X-Men really thrived at when you were left with this uncomfortable feeling of, oh, this is bittersweet. Yes, definitely feels like it has stakes, especially because Banshee is witnessing all of this go down at the same time and trying to get uh, Thunderbird to stop. And also, we're getting a little sense of like the callousness of where Cyclops might be mentally. You know, the last lines of this uh, issue are, I suppose it had to happen. It comes with the uniform, which is dark, it's dark. A, it's a dark line. Also, Cyclops says like for a 1975, Cyclops says a cuss the panel before, which is insane. Yeah, he does say uh, hell. So uh, he says it's interesting. It's it's wild that this happens. And especially wild because like, I think Claremont, the next issue is when Cyclops is, he's like, actually, this doesn't ring right to me. I want to go back and make him worked up about that. And that's where he gets so mad about the Nagari and the angry Claremont narrator yells at him. And he's like, you could have saved him, couldn't you, Scott? Couldn't you? Couldn't you? And then he (laughs) shoots his lasers and it blows up the Karen and then the Nagari show up. Amazing. Amazing. So anyway, this this is is... a real classic. You know, I I think this starts it off really well. Now, I guess the question that we have to ask ourselves is, is this on par with like giant size X-Men, which is at 105? So it's interesting. I think in execution, it's a little it's not as visually interesting as giant size X-Men number one. It doesn't have as much that works. In fact, I think most of the book is pretty typical fare until that last part where there truly is a like shift in tone and and in how intense Cockrum is going at it from a pencil standpoint. Mm-hmm. So I think the ending elevates it. But I do think that this book is still pretty typical of 1975 comics up until that point when you realize maybe there's something special here. Yeah, like, I do think we're still in the hundreds, though. Like, I'm I'm looking down the list, and you know, I see uh, Jim Lee's Acts of Vengeance at 153. At 154 is the time Magneto threw Red Skull into a hole. This is not as good as that, Adam. Come on, you know this. And yeah, I but this. I I think it's better than Murder at the Mansion at 159. Do you really? I do. I do. I mean, this is a classic X-Men story that like it's foundational to what the X-Men are all about. So as silly as it, the Animen might be, I do think that it it holds like a, a real special place in the X-Men lore and history. I think it holds a special place, but I think in my mind, the execution isn't as strong 
as some of the other stuff. Like at 173, we have Devil in the House from X-Men 28, that Gene and Sabretooth story. And I think mm. Pound for Pound, that one's better. But, you know, oh, I do. Okay. In my mind, I look at like, I, I think this probably is in the 100s. Like, I think this is better than at 199, which is the Uncanny Avengers story where they wrap up the Red Skull stuff. Mm-hmm. Ooh, actually, no, I have a ceiling. It's 180 because this is not better than uh, X-Men 193 Warpath, the 100th issue where they redo oh, this story, okay. but better. The sequel of this story. All right. Okay. Yeah. This is this is actually not as good as that in my I mind. Would... Like, I know it's foundational, but yeah. compare those four panels of Xavier being all distraught to the John Romita Jr. Thunderbird page where he has to like drop the knife and like realize that he doesn't want vengeance for his brother. I think that this is better than the Leprechauns of Cassidy Keep at 183. And I also would put it ahead of 182, which is Age of X. I think it probably is not as good as the uh, Gillen Sword Volume 1. I would... I would be fine putting it above Gillen Sword, but I'm going to let you make that call. I mean, this is oh right, wait, this is not this is not Ewing Sword, right? Yeah, no, this is the Steve Sanders stuff in Death's Head is there? Yeah, okay, that is a lot of fun, but I okay, so this is going to be our new 181 X Men 94 to 95, The Death of Thunderbird, and that's the uh, right place for this. Yeah, I think we I think we found it. We it took us a second. All right, we got one more left, and like any good X-Men, they don't stay dead. Well, but this ain't Necrotia. Nope. This is this is also not Blackest Night, uh, which was not a which was not a Marvel comic, but did happen at the same time. This is Chaos War X-Men, the Dead X-Men. It's written by Wheezy and Chris mm-hmm. in 2010 of all times. Uh, with Doug Braithwright on uh, the art. Adam, do you know about Chaos War? This was the first time I had ever heard of Chaos War. Um, I'm very happy that there were recap pages on these two issues so that I could get a sense of the fact that every living creature was dead. Is that right? And all here's my understanding because I've the the Pock Mighty Hercules run is actually one that I would probably really enjoy catching up with. And I just haven't, uh, but this is a Hercules event. A Hercules you know, Hercules. Event. Okay. Sure. Well, world war Hulk happened mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then Hulk was a bad guy. So he didn't have a book. So Hercules took over his book with Amadeus Chow. And then they spun it off into a, to a Hercules book that got its own event called chaos war, where Amatsu Mikaboshi, the, He's a he's a he's a he's a Shinto uh, spirit, and he did a bad and killed everybody and resurrected all the dead people. And okay, now the dead people have to stop uh, Amatsu Mikaboshi. This does lead to a team later called the God Squad that Hercules leads. Which it's a shame that the God Squad is not always a thing that we have going on. <laughs> oh no! I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Amaku Mitsuboshi was on the God Squad before this, which leads into it. Uh, just just so you know, Adam, do you want to know who was on the God Squad? Sure. Enlighten me. Uh, it was Thor. Great. Uh, Snowbird. Amadeus Cho, who's not a god, but was just like there. Is Snowbird a god? Uh, 
have you not read the John Byrne uh, Alpha Flight? Because I also haven't, but I do know no. that. No, of course I Snowbird, haven't. No, it's like, the I forget their names, but there's a bunch of Canadian gods up there that. Great. It's All a right, whole thing. Keep going. Amadeus Cho, not a god. Amadeus Cho, a tomb who's, uh, I think, like Amon Ra or something. Uh, sure. Uh, Egyptian god. Venus from uh, Agents of Atlas. Also the goddess That's Venus. Fun. Silver Surfer and Galactus. Stretching it. Hold on. Do you think Galactus isn't a god? Because I feel like Galactus. Galactus, if we consult the cosmic power rankings that no one should ever, ever try and sort out because that's an insane person's task. I mean, like, here's the thing. Galactus, bigger, stronger than Thor. And if we're counting Thor as a god, Galactus is above a god. Plus, Galactus is the last survivor of the last universe. You know, the, the what was it? Is it? No. So, ISO 8 is... From that, so seven from the sixth universe, we're in the eighth universe now. Sure, Adam, we gotta get you to read Ultimates and Ultimate Squared, <laughs> and then Defenders and Defenders Beyond, uh, because it's yeah, wild. Defen- Defenders and Defenders of Beyond are the one with Galactus's hot mom, right? I think I read some of that. One of my favorite things we ever did on the site is when we got to reveal Galactus's hot mom in a preview for Defenders, and I said, Everyone, Galactus has a MILF mom now. She's hot. We just got to accept that Galactus has a smoking hot mom, and we all got to deal with it. I'm going to go out uh, on the Also, Cersei and Galactus, Ajax. Galactus is not a god. We, you Listen, you worship on. your gods in your way. I'll worship mine in mine. Galactus once wanted the Galactus seed, a cosmic heart that would give birth to the next universe to come. Odin refused to hand the seed over to Galactus, believing that Galactus was in search of godhood and wanted to live forever. So Odin says he's not. He's not a god. Galactus is older than Odin. Galactus, literally the first thing in the in this cosmos. I'm just telling you, Odin says he's not. Um, hold on. Is that the is that the 60s story with the first like Galactus and Thor story where Jack Kirby does some wild collages? Yeah, probably. Yeah, that story rules. Except for it's got a recorder, a regalian recorder. That's a dumb design, Jack. You did a bad one there. Can't all be winners. All right, Marvel Wiki Chaos says War he is X-Men. Near... Yeah, okay, okay. Let's let's get off of Galactus. <laughs> Galactus isn't in the story. Um Okay, we gotta do so, we gotta do that Eric Larson Galactus Wolverine story so we can talk about Galactus more. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, so um, in this story, uh, Chaos War is happening, and so some of our dead X Men have been resurrected. They include Thunderbird, Banshee, duplicates of Multiple Man, including the two first one and the most recent one that had died uh, in current continuity. Two of the Stepbird Cuckoos, Esme and Sophie. And Zach, Zach, I've skipped one just so that you can share the special nature of our final cast member here. It's Moira McTaggart, famous X-Men friend Moira McTaggart, who was definitely dead at the time and not hanging out in a cancer room. So if we take the Hoxpox retcon, this is not actually Moira McTaggart. It is the Shi'ar Golem that helped her fake her death. Yeah. So that's fun. (laughs) Listen, look, here's the thing. We don't have to worry about that. Moira is dead here. This is dead Moira. Though what's very interesting is that dead, undead Moira gets possessed by Destiny's ghost. That's right. The Shi'ar Golem gets gets possessed by 
Destiny. Um, Which those characters hadn't like had a thing before. So this is an interesting like, huh, okay. Yeah. There's a lot of color to the Moira, the Moira House of X retcon that happens here. And it's just like interesting. I would like to I would like to hear more about this and maybe have her skin one of the other characters and wear his wear his skin <laughs> as a disguise. People right, make so people have a lot of valid complaints about how evil Moira has gotten. Skinning banshees a very good thing that happened, and I think that's the funniest friggin' thing in the world. Like that's Pretty great. Wild. And again, Ben Percy deserves all the roses. <laughs> all right, so these dead X Men very confused about why they're back. They don't understand. They don't have any context for what's going. They on. They also Thunder have Bird, not read Chaos War. <laughs> they have not read Chaos War. They don't know what's going on. The Thunderbird is seeing the outline of a giant Thunderbird in the sky. All of them are just sort of getting to know each other and exploring around where they're where they're going. Uh, flock of crows is slowly encroaching upon them throughout the issue until it finally approaches and takes Sophie with them and turns Sophie into a giant crow monster. Um, she would, Sophie, dead, you remember Sophie was the good one who died at the end of uh ride at Xavier's cause she did a drug. Esme's the mean one that died because she was sleeping with, Zorn, who was pretending to be Magneto, pretending to be himself, but then not pretending to be himself at that specific time. Yes. Uh, they end up on Muir Island, which is supposedly a place where there's all kinds of um, mystical ley lines. Yes. Mystical lines that are connected ley lines, to the world. Ley lines. Again, ley Ben lines. Percy stuff. Ley lines. Let's go. Ben Percy didn't this. write this. It's Chris and Wheezy. As you mentioned before, Moira becomes Destiny. Uh, she's got a copy of, of the diary. And they are fending off these crows until really it's, uh, you know, proud stars chance to, to shine. And he, you know, summons the mystical energy of the Thunderbird. We, we had a conversation before we started recording about whether this is actual Apache lore or whether it's just Chris sort of I'm, doing I'm stuff an Apache and historian, but no, but I'm not Googling. convinced. My quick Googling could not pull up anything. It could pull up, obviously, stuff about the Thunderbird as a legend, but that seemed to be more more Atlantic uh, tribes. Uh, and then I also saw something of the Carrion Crow in some traditions being a trickster god, but that was more in, like, heavily Northwest Pacific tribes, none of which had anything to do with actual Apache stuff, as far as I can tell. But again... Consult someone who would actually know. I don't, and Chris Claremont and Louise Simonson absolutely didn't. Yeah, I don't. I don't know, but it really doesn't. I, I mean, I don't want to diminish the cultural uh, insensitive nature of what might be happening here. But Thunderbird summons a Thunderbird Phoenix style that kills the crow, and you know, hopefully, this is helping everybody. It's just, it's just weird that this is this happens twice, right? Like. Because this is essentially also what he does in X-Force, where he teaches them how to do the ghost dance, which, again, is not what, what the ghost dance was or right, talked what was that. especially with the Apache. Yeah. Uh, and that was less than a year before this. So it's very well, weird that it's happening again. He even mentions remembering being brought back before uh, so this ain't his first time at this rodeo. Here's what I want to say about this, because I know you're probably going to be surprised that I'm going to say this, especially with the combination 
of Chris and Wheezy doing the dialogue and this art of Doug Braithwaite's, which does kind of have a little bit of a John Bolton vibe to it. This does have kind of a classic X-Men backup story feel to it. Unfortunately, it has a couple of the weird Chris Claremont hallmarks like Destiny's Diaries. It also has the very unfortunate edition of Thunderbird and Esme discussing how in another life they would have gotten it on. Um, didn't like that. I didn't like it the first time it gets mentioned, and I sure didn't mention didn't like it when it gets mentioned on the last page of this story either. Okay, so let's unpack that for one second. Thunderbird died as like an 18-year-old. Is that like uh he's, he's drawn he's drawn as he's drawn as like an he's absolute a 20-somethings man. He is not he's a 20-somethings man. He yes, he's 18 years old, but he was like Okay, wait, no, hold on. He he was just discharged from the Marines. So, okay, you know, he would have been... Yeah, he was done with his tour of duty. But he did lie to join the Marines early. So, okay, yeah, he's early 20s. He's early 20s. Let's say that. We're both looking up Thunderbirds here's Marvel what, wiki page. Here's the problem. This is an illegal thing that they are suggesting. Now like, that now that you're Now that you're laying this out, I'm like... Okay, I'm seeing what you're seeing now. I had in my mind that Thunderbird was like Colossus or Nightcrawler's age. No. No, you're right. You're right. He's an adult man. And Esme is a kid. She's a Esme, kid. Esme probably 15. So just the idea that he had to put that in here just like is uh, uncomfortable. Um, there's no reason for it. It's very, it doesn't like help the story at all. So I'm going to just pretend that's not in this. And honestly, I didn't have a bad time with these two issues. It was okay. Spending some time with everybody, figuring out why they were dead. And then they attack some crows and everybody goes home. Is it the best thing I've ever written? Absolutely read. No, it is absolutely not the best thing I've ever read. Um, but I think I it think looks nice. And I didn't mind Chris Claremont clearly being reined in by, you know, partnering up with Wheezy. Yeah, I don't I don't know how I feel about this one cuz I don't like it. I don't think this is a good story. I think Thunderbird every time Claremont I feel like Claremont has like residual guilt about killing off Thunderbird as early as he did in the run because you see it in the classic X-Men backups, you see it in that 100th anniversary story. Heck, you see it a bit in Black Sun. Like sure. he kind of want he's like we should have done more with Thunderbird actually. Like I get that we said that him and Wolverine are the same and they were at the time, but Wolverine's different now. Mm -hmm. Wolverine's his own thing. So we can do Thunderbird again. I know it won't happen, but like if they ever give Chris Claremont a team book again and Thunderbird happens to be on it. Don't don't do that. I just I think it would be fascinating to see what Claremont would do with this character, given the chance that he's alive and like can do something with him. Listen, once we've we've already given an indigenous writer, an opportunity to write this character, right? At least, and it once. was it was the best it was the best Thunderbird story they've done. So why would we want to give it back to Mister Claremont? I don't not think disagreeing. That's a good idea. We don't I'm need not to dis- put that out there into reality. Like I'm not I'm not disagreeing with that. I'm saying in the context of a team book where 
Claremont would likely have other characters and sure. just cards on the table about Marvel and their ability to generate talent. Look, they don't have they don't have a lot of indigenous talent on the bench, frankly. Like, uh, well, yeah, they don't. That and that's a whole different problem. I'm, yes, you're looking at you're looking. I'm looking at it from a realistically what might Marvel do in the next two years, and you're looking at it from what Marvel should do. And we, I think you and I are both on the same page on both of those things. It's just we're coming at it from a different vantage point here. To your point, I think it is interesting how this version of Thunderbird is very much about being noble and, you know, the higher cause and lacks the emotional intensity that I think writers in the Krakoan age have actually gotten correct. You know, this character lacks his temper here, which is a well, core this, this part guy, of who he is. This guy's been dead for a while. And he's like, yeah. I, okay, I was dead. Now I'm not. So I don't know. He also doesn't really have anyone to be mad at because he likes Banshee. Banshee was the yes. one guy he was like kind of cool with. Yeah. Which yeah. Banshee he's was just, the other older character. Mm, he's that would have been interesting. I'm thinking through this. Yeah. There's a what if story that what if Thunderbird doesn't die, but then they keep doing it and it's good. I don't know. I would like to see Thunderbird play with that team more. I just, I want more Thunderbird. I honestly am a little annoyed that they haven't done more with Thunderbird since they resurrected him. Hey, so many characters. It's hard to, hard to do stuff with everybody, but uh, yeah, but they gave him a one shot. They, they sure did. They gave him a push and maybe that one shot didn't sell because it was a Thunderbird comic. And I can't imagine that Thunderbird solo is going to move a lot of units, but they should have, they should have kept going. They should have kept pushing him more. Cause I think there's a lot of Thunderbird to like. Yeah. Anyway, I don't hate this. I just think, you know, it's it's a weird thing. Like, it seems like something that has no real effect on the larger crossover, but it could also be integral. I, I honestly don't know. So I, I have to take it just as it is as an X-Men artifact. And I I enjoyed at least for what it was. And I enjoyed the artwork um, with just some of the caveats that I mentioned earlier. So I don't think this is going to rank super high. Where should we be starting here, Zach? So I just kind of scrolled around the list. I think this is, I don't think this is in the 300s. I no. think it's below that for sure. Uh, yeah. Though I think it might be, I think we might have like a 400er somewhere around there. Sure. Because like 506 is X4 sex and violence. I think this is better than that. Yeah, I, I think this has a, at least a, a little going for it here. Um, I think this is Actually, better. Okay, go ahead. I I found I found my ceilings on this, and I think you found you found some floors. So we're we're tightening in on this one. Okay, so you're you have you have X Men Primer from mm -hmm. X Men Volume Four One Through Three at four ninety six. Mm -hmm. I think this is I could I could have this is better than that. Yeah, I think this is, you know where I would put this? I would put this. Where would you put it? Right between Mutant X 1 to 3 and Generation Hope 1 to 4. Okay. I'm not going to fight that. That, sounds, that yeah. sounds fine. Hey, is it weird that the one guy from Generation Hope has Albert the robot Wolverine? He's just living with him now? Yeah. Like, by living with him, I mean like they have they have bonded into one being. Yeah. Dark X-Men. You got... Uh, got Al just sort of chilling on his shoulder. <laughs> it's a weird it's really book. Weird. It's a weird it's book. Weird. It's Love also weird that Maggot was the moral center of that book for a while before he quit. 
Um, yeah, all three issues, you know? I love Maggot. I love him so much. That's the end of this episode, Adam. We spent so wow. much time talking about the Wrecking Crew. You're that not allowed was... to edit out all of our Wrecking Crew content. It's most of Oh, the no, no, no. No, we'll keep this long. This is a fun one. Uh, and I hope everybody enjoyed our conversation about Count Nefaria. Thanks to... Thanks to Robert on Patreon. If you want to be like Robert, go over to patreon.com slash Battle of the Adam and see what we got going on. Uh, we got nice. stuff. Adam, what do you specifically have going on? I uh, believe by the time this comes out, uh, Dr. Anna Papard and I will have covered the final and fourth issue of Jean Grey, speaking of Wheezy. Um, and you can always follow me on socials, Adam Reck on Instagram and Blue Sky and Arthur Stacy on Twitter. Zach, what are we doing next week? Uh, next week, we're going into the Ultraverse, a area I know nothing about. Oh, my God. This is finally happening. We're going to the Ultraverse. Going to the Ultraverse. Folks, do you know what the Ultraverse is? <laughs> You're about I, to find out if you didn't live through the 90s. I, I am learning that the Ultraverse had a cartoon at one point. They were giving cartoons to anybody, weren't they? Whoa. Where's they the Ultraverse gave, cartoon streaming? They almost gave one to Youngblood. So, you know, anything could have happened. They actually did hey. give one to Wildcats. Yeah, is the wild is the Wildcast cartoon streaming anywhere? I'm sure you could YouTube it, you know. Anyway, next week, folks, we're doing the Ultraverse. So it's on Tubi. Ultraverse is on Tubi. Amazing. That means it's free. That means you- that means it's free. Uh Wildcats, you can buy on Amazon. Oh, look, it also is on Tubi. Guys, go to Tubi, catch up on these bad <laughs> 90s superhero cartoons. Uh, but until then, folks, this has been Battle of the Atom. We hope you survived the experience. Get it!